0: This is Shelley Welton here with David Kaniski, who's a professor at the Paul H. O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University, where his research focuses on U.S. environmental and energy policy, with a particular emphasis on regulation, federalism, and state politics, public opinion, and environmental justice. And we're going to talk today about a 2016 book that he wrote, and then also some of his forthcoming research on public preferences and energy infrastructure. So. Thank you so much for being with me today, David. Yes, thanks for having me. So I thought we'd start by talking about your 2016 book with Stephen and Sola Beher, Cheap and Clean, How Americans Think About Energy in the Age of Global Warming. And I really loved this book for getting at a topic that I think people have just largely not talked about that much, which is what Americans' energy preferences actually are. So I thought I would just start by asking you, why do you think there's been so little research on this question of what Americans want from energy?
1: yeah, it's a great question. And it's actually something that surprised me quite a bit when we first started the project is you know we started do our initial literature review, and there wasn't a lot to draw from because mm-hmm. there had not been a lot of previous study. I think the main reason is that over you know from a historical perspective, um, energy has really been a low salience issue for most Americans, so it's mm-hmm. not the kind of thing that's in the news a lot. and typically, we see a lot of public uh, public opinion polling is when items are in the news, they're on the agenda, and people are trying to take a pulse of what Americans mm-hmm. think. And what's really the exception, we have a couple of exceptions. One would be when we've had supply shocks. So during the oil crises in the 1970s, you saw an initial wave of public opinion mm-hmm. polling, although the industry wasn't quite as established and academics weren't quite as regularly doing public opinion polling, so there wasn't too much going on at that stage. But then the second... Uh, a second sort of um, time where you've seen a lot of polling has been around accidents or catastrophes. So think about the Exxon Valdez spill in the late 1980s or um, when uh, there have been nuclear accidents. You know, there tends to be a wave of opinion polling when there's some, some crisis that we want to take a, a measure of how people are thinking about it. But by and large, energy is a pretty low salient issue. So we haven't actually tracked for, you know, for historically what Americans think. Now, that's beginning to change quite a bit, even since we've written the book and started the book over the last 10 years, really because of the urgency and the emergence of climate change, we've seen an immense amount of polling around energy preferences. Uh, particularly around renewable energy, which seems to be where much of the attention has been from scholars.
0: Great. So let's talk a little bit about the substance and what you found about what Americans think about energy. Um, and I thought we'd focus in particularly on what you found about some of the trade offs that they think about. So you outline this certain tension in the book between cheap electricity and clean electricity. So, will you talk a little bit just about what you found about how Americans weigh this trade off?
1: Yeah. So I think what we were hoping to do with the book was to determine if there was a sort of a common structure or framework around how people thought about energy, Mm -hmm. right? So one might have instead thought that people just like wind or they like solar because they just, there's something about those sources of energy that make them, Mm that are appealing. Whereas maybe for some fossil fuels, they're less appealing. Who knows, right? It wasn't quite clear if people had preferences that were energy source specific, or if there were a set of attributes about those energy sources that really were the prime determinants of their, mm-hmm. of their preferences. And what we found is that there is a structure, and it works across energy sources, and that the two factors that matter the most are perceptions of the environmental harms that people associate with energy, as well as their perceived cost. And in particular, it's the local environmental harms. When we first began the project and the early surveys, which were now about 15 years ago, uh, climate concerns were not really a driving factor in how people were shaping their preferences towards Mm -hmm. renewables or or fossil fuels. Um, It was really local environmental quality issues, right? So air pollution, water pollution, toxics that are associated with some of the um, fossil fuels in particular. Um, So what we found is those two attributes, these perceptions of environmental harm, and perceptions of economic costs were really the drivers. Now, which of those are more important is sort of the interesting question, right? Um, and what we found is that it was local environmental harms that were about twice, about twice as much weight in people's minds than economic costs. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the key driving force between, um, you know, uh, and moreover, it, it was a similar weight whether we were talking about preference source coal or natural gas or nuclear power or renewables. It kind of worked in the same way regardless of energy source. So people really put a lot of emphasis on their perceptions, at least, of local and environmental harms. Also, cost, but a little bit less so in relationship.
0: So, will you talk about how that played out in terms of which sources people seemed to preference most, like just on a you know practical physical level?
1: Sure. So you know, um, people, and this is true. We did you know over a decade of polling, and this sort of rank ordering came out pretty much every time, exactly the same. Right? People have, and this is across the yeah. Uh, the, 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 American public uh you know people have very strong favorability towards renewable sources particularly solar power and wind but also mm-hmm. hydropower um so it was, it was not quite as popular but almost but but almost there um and then there if you sort of go in order people are less favorable towards uh natural gas Coal, oil, and then with nuclear power, people are conflicted, right? Mm-hmm. There's a str- there's a strong contingent of folks that really like nuclear power, but an equally strong people that are um, have some concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's interesting about it is that was pretty stable over time. Um, now, when we first started our polling on energy. People had people were sort of getting the environmental harms right, which is if you sort of poke at them a little bit, to make sure that they're understanding the mm-hmm. harms associated with energy sources. People were generally getting that rank ordering correct. When it came to costs, people were not quite as, at least in the early days, um, not were not quite as right. Um, in particular. We were finding that people really thought uh, renewable energy, solar and wind were inexpensive, particularly the least expensive of all the energy mm-hmm. sources. Something about it just being free, right? The yeah. sun shines, the wind blows. Um, whereas obviously, you know, back in the year 2000, 2002, when we first started polling, those sources were still comparatively yeah. much more expensive. That has, of course, changed, right? Those, in many places, those sources are, you know, um, competitive, if not less expensive than other sources. So people are sort of getting the perceptions of costs, um, a little bit incorrect initially, but those, but as a factor, it still sort of had yeah. similar weights over time.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. So, and I think your your findings about people privileging considerations of local harms have interesting implications for climate change. Um, And you describe in the book that our Americans are of two minds about climate change. And I think you're trying to say something different than just like some believe and some don't believe. So what do you mean by of two minds and how do you see... Americans' preferences manifesting in climate policy in the United States.
1: Yeah, what's always sort of struck me as interesting about Americans' attitudes about climate change is that when you pick up any public opinion poll, right, you get something that looks pretty similar, Mm -hmm. right, regardless of the source. You know, it's somewhere like 75-8% say that climate change is occurring, slightly lower percentage saying that it's it's man-made, right? Mm -hmm. And so there seems to be a consensus that this is a problem, that we kind of understand the basic dimensions. Of course, there's political polarization and there's differences across some demographics but setting those aside for a moment right but it seems like this is something that people might find to be important Mm -hmm. right and there's sort of shared concern about it but the two minds component is the fact that climate change for most people is still pretty low salience Mm -hmm. right so people express an opinion on a public opinion we can measure it. We can analyze it. We can figure out you know who's um, you know for whom this is a really important kind of uh, um, belief. But by and large, this is not the kind of problem that people are doing things like voting on mm-hmm. or changing their individual behavior about, right? Mm-hmm. Or pressuring local government officials to you know change development patterns.
0: So I'm curious what this <laughs> research suggests in your opinion about. How we make climate progress in the United States, and I thought I might push you to talk in particular about the possibilities for regulatory approaches versus carbon pricing, um, something like cap and trade or a carbon tax, and then also maybe if you have any thoughts about the Green New Deal in comparison to those.
1: Right, great question. So. At the sort of a, the last part of the book, we really wanted to make an effort to be able to say something about policy and what sort of the implications were for how Americans think about energy issues, think about climate, for what might be an effective or viable approach. And it sort of comes back to the fact that Americans really place a lot of weight on these local environmental harms. Mm -hmm. And moreover, the American public, generally speaking, has a lot of faith in institutions like the EPA, who have historically been utilizing regulations to reduce those environmental harms, Mm -hmm. right? And that's Essentially, the structure of our pollution control laws mm-hmm. is the federal government, you know, setting setting rules for industry and for and for others as to how to reduce emissions. Um, so, if you sort of take these two factors, the fact that people have a you know, believe and have confidence that regulations can be effective. They're worried about local and environmental harms. If you so, what we thought about was, well, if you go after sort of the co-benefits of reducing carbon emissions, right? So pollutants mm-hmm. that people really um, there's less controversy about, right? Yeah. Whether it is, you know, you know, particulate matter or ozone or mercury, those things that people believe the EPA, I and mean, believe reg- regulation is a good approach for, then. You know, you could actually reduce carbon emissions by going after those the sources that are producing both, right? So. You know, back to your question, you know what we what we did in the research. And you know, I think other public opinion polls also show is that when you ask people about which approaches they prefer for dealing with climate change, regulatory approaches usually come out on top. People are pretty comfortable with having some certainty that are associated with caps on emissions, limits on emissions directly, and they're a little bit less certain about approaches that rely on markets, whether it be cap and trade or carbon taxes. Mm-hmm. You know, people seem to to have a little bit of reticence about allowing the markets or industry to sort of, you know, pick and choose or Mm -hmm. um, that we have some flexibility about how to reduce their emissions. And I think it comes down to, you know, um, this idea that regulation is something people have a sort of a higher comfort level with, but Mm -hmm. there's more certainty attached to it. So on the Green New Deal, this is sort of the last part of your question, right? I think it's kind of an open question because the Green New Deal to this point has been a little bit um, quiet as to what the approaches yeah. might be. And one might imagine you know, trying to um, meet the, re- the emissions aspirations of the Green New Deal through a variety of of policy mechanisms. It could be regulation, it could be markets, it could be some combination. And the um, the authors haven't really yet sort of put forward a specific plan as to how, to how to get there. But what I think, where I sort of see the Green New Deal going and where the political momentum is, is more towards certainty and towards regulations, uh, mm-hmm. or at least having set caps on emissions, right? And that seems to be where the political momentum as I see it is is headed. And a little bit away from the market-based strategies, which I think everyone has long assumed would be the approach that would pass Congress. And I'm not sure that's true anymore.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when I think about how state dynamics have played out in respect to your research. Like renewable portfolio standards seem to be the the dominant preferred approach, which kind of lines up with what you're saying about wanting some certainty in terms of resources being promoted instead of a cap and trade or a carbon tax regime.
1: That's right. Of course there are some parts of the country that have, have used cap and trade and sort of pricing on carbon as well. But if you look, you know, broadly across the country, it is true that the that renewable portfolio standards have been more widely adopted mm-hmm. and more widely adopted in different political
0: context, right?
1: So there seems to be something to it about sort of the acceptability of these kinds of approaches that um, do provide some more certainty, at least Mm -hmm. in the minds of people.
0: Yeah. Okay, so let's shift gears a little. I wanted to talk about some forthcoming work now. So I hear you're doing a project on Americans' attitudes towards a range of different energy infrastructure. So I thought I'd get you to start by just briefly describing the research question and how you've designed the study.
1: Yeah, so this is, we're really excited about this. So this is work um, that is uh, in collaboration, again, with Steve Anselbeher, as well as my colleague here at Indiana, Sonia Carley, where we, we wanted to get a sense of how people's attitudes are shaped around energy infrastructure in particular. Mm-hmm. And the starting point for this project is sort of thinking that, you know, regardless of how quickly we move towards an energy transition, we are headed that way. Um, and we're going to need to build things, right? Either yeah. to modernize or upgrade existing infrastructure or to put in place new kinds of, mm-hmm. of energy. Uh, so, um, people have been interested in citing questions around energy for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a really large literature around uh, the issue of NIMBY or not my backyard kind of attitudes. Mm -hmm. And what we sort of, assess from reading the literature is that we actually don't know. It's it's hard. We don't know what we don't know in some ways because people go after this question in very different ways. It's very hard to synthesize this literature because Mm -hmm. every public opinion survey is a little bit different. So when people find, have a finding about wind, it's hard to know, well, is that really a finding about NIMBY or is it a finding about wind, right? Mm -hmm. Because nothing's been done in a large scale comparative way. So we set out that what we thought was a pretty, um, um, ambitious project and we had the the kind support of the sloan foundation to to Mm -hmm. allow us us to do this where we decided to do surveying around a range of projects um, everything from oil and natural gas pipelines to transmission lines to power plants to lng uh, Mm -hmm. terminals and our goal was to see whether or not sort of these not my backyard attitudes were present, at least in a widespread way, across these sources yep. and more broadly to get our understanding of what's pushing people to either favor or oppose the siting of these kinds of projects. Mm-hmm. Um, So we did a bunch of surveys where we've located actual projects that were in the planning phase. So projects Mm -hmm. that there was, um, you know, there's actual activity about people are thinking about investing and and making a go. And we did some pretty neat surveying where we surveyed people in the immediate um, vicinity of where these projects were and then compared their attitudes with people, people elsewhere in the state. Uh huh. This allowed us, as we think, to get at whether or not sort of preferences are being driven by if you're living close by or just somewhere else. And what we found, a little bit to our surprise, was that these not-my-backyard attitudes don't seem to be very prevalent at all. Mm -hmm. Um, We found a little bit of evidence that people who are living in closer proximity to pipelines were a little bit less likely to support um, they're, you know, they're being, uh, they're being constructed. Um, but by and large, these weren't people who would otherwise support pipelines, right? So typically right. when you think about NIMBYism, it's, you know, I, I think this is a good idea in general. I just don't want it near me, mm-hmm. right? That's sort of the traditional you know, conception of what of what NIMBY is all about. And we didn't find any evidence of that. There's no evidence across the different kinds of projects we looked at. Um, so we're pretty excited about it. It kind of, we think we'll, you know, provides an approach that's comparative, that's ambitious, that really gets to the, the nature of the NIMBY question. Um, and, you know, again, the finding is essentially that we don't really find much widespread evidence of a NIMBY attitude in the American public. From a policy standpoint, you know, I think it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, it is true that there's a lot of complaints that opposition to citing slows down permitting, things get bogged down in the courts. Um, And, you know, what's unclear to me is whether or not um, that is reflecting some sort of Overall opinion that people have in opposition to energy infrastructure mm-hmm. um, because it doesn't seem to be related specifically to where folks live, right? Um, so, from a policy standpoint, what their project is, I think, beginning to tell us is that a lot comes down to how you frame these issues and, like, mm-hmm. what's actually where you can move people to be more or less supportive around projects. Yeah. And this is where it sort of comes back to the other research we were discussing, yeah. right? So, you can easily think about talking about, you know, a transmission line or a pipeline. not as sort of a piece of infrastructure, but like what is it going to be doing, right? And is Mm -hmm. that um, something that people want or or not want? And it's those attributes that might be particularly important rather than just the idea of living next to something.
0: Uh So does it matter if a transmission line is going to be carrying coal or renewables for the person that lives next to it?
1: Yeah. So we were interested in that question. We actually have written a paper uh, that, that addresses that, and we did that through a survey experiment where we, mm-hmm. we we tried to manipulate the information that people were receiving to get this very question. right? So the, the nature of the research was to ask the question, okay, it's like in the abstract, do you favor or oppose a new transmission line if you're mm-hmm. to be located near where you live? And People were pretty apathetic. Like generally, they sort of say yes, it seems fine, but it's so. But it wasn't like there was huge support or huge mm-hmm. opposition. In part because people probably don't haven't really thought about that kind of a question before, right? Um, however. We then you know, set up the experiment where we provided additional information about what that transmission line would be, sort of, where the electrons would be coming from, right? right? Um, and we found that when you tell people that it's going to be moving electrons from renewable sources of energy, it actually moved the needle quite a bit. People became much more favorable towards that transmission line. Um, and then we do the similar kind of a, um, a setup with natural gas and coal, and it kind of worked in that order where natural gas, people were a little bit more accepting of the transmission line than sort of the control group that received no information. But when you told them that it was coal, it actually, people Mm. were less supportive, right? So I think this is actually very much in keeping with the, the research in cheap and clean where we find these yeah. attributes right so if people are thinking about the environmental harms associated with these energy sources that is then spilling over to how they're thinking about the the complementary infrastructure which is really i think quite interesting and, yeah. and i think the lesson for policymakers or for developers is that you can potentially um sort of play up these kinds of factors if you're trying to overcome some opposition or at least build more support
0: yeah i mean it seems given that we need this huge transmis- transmission transmission infrastructure investment specifically for renewable energy. It's kind of a positive story for that.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if we we need new infrastructure to sort of hasten the energy transition, particularly around renewables, um, this, I think, is is a positive story. Uh...
0: Um, Okay, so last question that I want to ask you. If you do support the idea that Americans should be more involved in energy policy, What do you think your research says about the forms that maybe that kind of public involvement should take that would be effective but not overwhelming, which is, of course, the challenge that faces any policymaker that's trying to actually elicit successful and impactful public involvement?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Energy is going to remain sort of a low ceiling issue um, until people who you trust begin to talk more and more about it. And that's one of the exciting things I think has happened in this presidential cycle, as an example. Yeah. Regardless of what you think about the various candidates, you know, on the democratic side, there's been much more attention to energy and to climate, and I think that when you put it out there on the agenda, people begin to think about it more, mm-hmm. make connections between their own lives and some of the bigger issues that are being talked about. And I think you see actually see that reflected in the polling of primary voters who are all of mm-hmm. a sudden climate change has emerged as a top three issue, which is mm. really unchartered territory. And yeah. energy is a big part of that. So I think having you know elected officials, um, other respected um, people. In, in public life speaking more and more about energy and climate will have a way of sort of elevating yeah. it in the minds of Americans and then what the research that we've been doing and others have been doing shows is that there are ways you can talk about this to make people more accepting of possible policy interventions, mm-hmm. right? And if you really are emphasizing local and environmental harms and, and, yeah. and costs that, that can move people quite a bit and I think increasingly even since we wrote the cheap and clean book you know, climate change is really um, it's sort of become a little more sailing for folks, yeah. much, much more sailing for folks.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It was a great conversation. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.